Today we'll finish up 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're really going to, while we finish this chapter up, we're really going to set the, uh, down the intro to chapter 12, which is our next chapter. We only got two chapters to go that I told you we were going to take a little mini camp on uh, leadership, and then we're going to jump right smack and both feet into the book of Proverbs, and uh, hopefully we'll be there till the Lord comes back, and that uh, be a good deal. Now, the last three weeks, we have been examining this chapter. We've seen how the attack of the church is to be carried out. We brought you through the, um, all the aspects of the church age and showed you how that uh, we are living in the last period, which is called the Laodicean church period. should be crystal clear now what we're up against uh, as we make our way through the Laodicean church period. The thing I gave you in Colossians last week is a vital piece of information showing you how it lines up to that period of church history. And last week, I built the message around three vital aspects of ministry uh, and really also the Christian life. And when the devil makes his attack, this is where he attacks. When he wants to get you and I off course, when he wants to get us fouled up into the things and entangled into the things of the world, he goes after three things. We talked about it. He goes after your focus. He goes after your perception and or, uh, any, or perspective, excuse me, and then goes after your purpose. And I told you when the attack comes uh, to the church, uh, it will aim at these three areas. And the church is made up of people, so we, we know now how it works. You remember I, I told you, and this is another great thing I, uh, that I always marvel at about the Bible, how that, that uh, Laodicea was only 11 miles south of Colossae. And the key word in dealing with the devil, as we've seen, in, the, in Paul's fear for the attack on the church was his subtleness. It said it in Genesis 3 that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. And then Paul said that he was afraid that the devil uh, would, would corrupt the church through his subtlety. And, of course, the subtlety lies in the fact that uh, Laodicea, just south of that great city, and it's so easy to cross over and not know where you have crossed over, and when that happens, then those three areas of your life are pretty well done with. Now, this week, we're going to look at the attack of the devil on Paul in a more specific, personal way. I showed you now uh, everything you need to know. It should be crystal clear to you where all this is at now. And uh, I, I want to show you today how the devil uh, come after Paul personally. And uh, just as last week, I told you that through all of the things that we look at and all the things that we deal with many times uh, that I talk about on Sunday, I know every one of you have been through things in life that you can look back and see the association and how it all goes together. Well, today won't be any different. I'm sure many of you older Christians especially will see yourself in some of this because you've been through some things in your Christian life. And it's hard not to go through things and have any kind of uh, mindset about, you know, what's going on in the Bible and not see the parallel sometimes. You know, I can't, it's hard for us today to imagine uh, the impact that Paul had on the early New Testament churches. We get so caught up in all the other things in the Bible or really not getting any depth on anything in the Bible. I, I can't tell you how important the Apostle Paul is in the New Testament. Not only does he write three quarters of the New Testament, and you heard me say it many, many times, got to be careful with the Bible. All the Bible was written for you, but not all the Bible was written directly to you. You've heard me say it many, many times. And there's places where you've got to be careful applying it to yourself in the Bible. 
Uh, we know that Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews are two uh, great books in the Bible, but boy, when you want to get all of the heresy that's in the church today and confuse people, it's because they go to those books and they try to apply those books directly to themselves. And you got to know uh, how to rightly divide the word of truth. But when it comes to what Paul writes, hey, we're on safe ground. Paul was the apostle to the church. Paul's mandate from God was to start churches, and he did so. Paul was not a pastor. Paul was an evangelist. And an evangelist in a New Testament Bible sense is a man who doesn't go around and just preach to churches uh, like they do today and call them evangelists. And I don't have a problem with that. But you need to understand what a true biblical evangelist is. Evangelist in the New Testament sense is a man like Paul who went and started churches, stayed there for a period of time, trained somebody up to take that church, and then went on and started another church. He put into into action the plan of God to begin churches to begin to grow, develop, split off, and do other churches grow and develop, and, and that's where the whole thing came from. The impact of Paul on the world is, is quite incredible. And it's hard for us to imagine the impact that he had on those early churches. The life of Paul is one of the greatest studies that you'll ever take in the Bible. I would say that at some point in your life, it's absolutely essential to spend the time to go through his life. And there's some great material out on it. Paul was probably the most preached about guy in the, in the New Testament. I mean, he's an incredible, incredible, incredible guy. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10 that he was the apostle specifically to the Gentiles. And because of that, everything he writes, he writes to churches. And if you notice your Bible, you know, you have, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are Jewish apostles uh, that, at, at the first coming of Christ, but they're not part of the church. And then you have Acts. Acts is a short name for Acts of the Apostles. There we see what the apostles are doing in that intermediate period of time, and a lot of things happen in Acts. But then when Paul gets saved, Acts chapter 9, he immediately begins to go out and do what God's called him to do. Most people don't even know that all of Paul's books are written during the book of Acts, that latter part when he's on his missionary trips. And uh, he, all his books are written to churches, except for three that are written to Christian young men. So those books form for us a foundation of, of incredible material that whether you're, uh, no matter where you're at in your Christian life, when you read something that Paul says, you know you can apply it to yourself. It's, it's, you're safe there. It's safe ground. But he's an incredible guy. Uh, God called him to start off the establishment of the church age. And, and we get to see just seven of the churches. Hey, I'm, tell, I'm telling you, we got a glimpse of seven churches that he started that he wrote letters to that became part of our New Testament, but he started many, many other churches. You got three men in the Bible uh, that he, he directly wrote books to that he won to Christ, but you know as well as I do, man, there was thousands of people that he influenced for the cause of Christ. It's an incredible, incredible life. His personal history is quite incredible. He, he holds the record for at least two, two, two records that I know of. Before he was saved, he holds the record of being the greatest enemy of Christianity. After he got saved, he holds the record for probably being the greatest Christian that ever lived. It shows you the power of God, what God can do in your life. When God saved him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, you know where he was going? He was on his way to persecute Christians. 
And there on the road to Damascus, God met him face to face, and, and God saved him that day, and God gave him the commission to go start churches. And from that point in his life, he became unequaled, I believe. I believe he's the greatest Christian that ever walked the planet. And it shows what God will do with you because he's just an ordinary man like you and me. He really is. But it all starts with him. And then those churches that he starts, they develop, they grow. And like melted butter, they spread all over Asia Minor and in time all over the world. It's in Acts chapter 11 with that early church in Antioch that Paul was responsible for where they're first called Christians and everything pretty much develops itself. If you're any kind of Bible believer, know anything about the Bible at all, you know that you can trace your roots right back to Acts chapter 11. I mean, there's a true biblical line that brings you right back to that. And, and I love Paul. I, I love everything about him. I love the way, because you see in him, uh, I, I love the way he worries and prays over those churches. He writes epistles to them when they're struggling. Uh, he comes to them, and, he, he, and many times he has to rebuke them. All the times that he meets with them is not always warm and fuzzy. It's, it's sometimes he has to deal with them. But there's never a time that, in all of the things that he does and how he tries to help them solve their problems that you don't see how much he loves them. He's very protective of them, as he should be. You see in the book of Galatians where some people are coming in and they're trying to disrupt that church. Some people call, come in, they're called the Judaizers, and what they were trying to do is bridge the Old Testament with the New Testament and say, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but you got to keep the Old Testament law. That didn't go over very well with Paul. He took them to task. He took the people in the church to task and said, you should know better. We saw it in 1 first, in first Corinthians, didn't we? Boy, he didn't cut him any slack there. I mean, uh, he really, really, really held him accountable, but in, a, every, in every sense, in a loving, fatherly way, because he was responsible for them. They were his children. They were his churches. It was his mandate. And uh, I look at him many, many times, and I think what he must have went through. I know I feel the same things about my church, but I only got one. Now, he had them all over Asia Minor. I even see it when he takes his, his, uh, his three missionary trips which take place uh, uh, toward the middle and the end of the book of Acts. He takes three missionary trips, and, and, uh, uh, and if, you have, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, uh, they usually show the missionary trips where he went. He understood the absolute function and importance of the concept of a New Testament local church. And if you, if you look at uh, those missionary trips that he takes, he's always doing them around going back to check on these churches. He's always going back to make sure that they're doing okay. There wasn't a time when they didn't have an issue that he didn't step up to try to help them. And you also, at the same time, you can't help but see that, that uh, Paul created a lot of enemies in his life. I mean, he had a lot of people that, uh, I mean, he had a lot of people that did not appreciate what he was doing. And I, I think as you, as you grow through this and you look through it and, uh, you know, in your own personal way, all of this is very important. Uh, to who we really are as Christians. Now, our text today I want to read is uh, chapter 11, and we're going to pick it up in verse 21 through 33. And from this passage, I want you to kind of see two things. First of all, I want you to see that there's a personal attack on Paul from the devil to stop him. We'll talk about that as we come on down through it. And then the second thing I want you to see, and I think this is probably really the most important thing, is I want you to see if you're ever going to do anything for God, 
If you're ever going to, like we talked about last week, make your stand and take a stand for God, if you're ever going to do that, the second thing you want to know is there's a price that you're going to have to pay to do that. It's not going to come free. It's not going to come cheap. It didn't in Paul's life, and it didn't in Paul's ministry, and it won't in mine, and it won't in yours. And uh, I, I, the message last week, what we hold the line, you know, was simply a beginning of the realization that it takes a special kind of man and woman to do the work of God today. And I told you that last week. Paul is that kind of special individual. Paul is that kind of special man, and there's a reason why. We won't get to the reason why today, but it'll be the, this is the introduction to the reason why next week. And uh, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. Paul was special. And the reason why we need to understand that, because there is a price to pay, and it takes a unique child of God today to stand and to pay it. Now, let's read the passage, and we'll begin to, to lay it out here. And, and, here's, uh, and, and it's here we see the real ministry and what it takes uh, to get it done. He says in verse 21, I speak concerning reproach as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whensoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? Now, keep in mind, he's talking about these critics here. He's talking about the false prophets that are, that are after him. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant in stripes, of a measure, in prisons, more frequent in deaths off. What he's doing here is this. He's got some people that have come into, obviously, this church that are telling them that Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. You got it in, 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 in this church where they're coming in and they're saying, listen to us. We know more about it than Paul does. It didn't matter to them that Paul was the one that was called by God. It didn't matter that these were his churches. But somebody has come into this church, or maybe they were in this church, I don't know, and they've grown up and now they've come to the point where they're challenging Paul, and it's obviously more than one person. And uh, they're, they're, they're taking him on as far as uh, uh, does he really have the ability to do uh, what they want to do. Basically, they're saying, I can be a better pastor than the pastor you got, is what they're saying. And he, he asked the question in verse 22 to them, are they Hebrews? He says, so am I. Are they Israelites? Those are the first two uh, pretty good qualifications. He says, so am I. Are they in the seat of Abraham? Me too. Are they, minister, are they ministers of Christ? And then he says, I speak as a fool. I am more. And what Paul's getting ready to say is here is these people may say that they're, they're, they're equal with me. These people may say that they have the ability to do this. But what he's saying is this. These people have never paid the price. And then he lists what he went through. And there's no list of anything they went through because they never went through anything. And that's why he, he comes down through here, and it's great for us. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, off. Of the Jews, now he gets specific. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered a shipwreck. A night and a day I, I'd been in the deep. And journeyings, offerings, and perils of waters, and perils of robbers, and perils of mine own countrymen, and perils by the heathen, and perils in the city, and perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, in weariness, and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, 
in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is offended? And I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Arteris, the king kept the city of Damascus with a garrison, desirous to apprehend me. And through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. Now, Father, help us today to see uh, the content of this great passage. These are good people today. For the majority of them, I believe they really love you and want to do what's right and want to serve you. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that we today can come to your word and that we can look within here and find those things that we need. We, we trust you today, Lord. We ask you to show us, mold us, make us, give us what we need. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I think that, I think that Paul was probably the greatest apostle of all the apostles. I mean, I know the other 12 went out and did all kinds of great things, but you know how limited they were. Their ministry got shut down with the death of Christ. Paul's ministry goes on to this day. And, uh, you know, uh, you find, most people don't even know this, you find 12 apostles that were there at the first coming of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know who they are. Most people don't know that when the church came in with Paul, there's seven apostles to the church. Obviously, lines up to the seven church period. I mean, they don't go all the way down, but they were the early uh, apostles in the church. He had apostles for the nation of Israel and for the early part of Acts and uh, on through there till they died off. He had apostles to the church, and Paul was one of them. But I think he's the greatest of all of them. I think he's the greatest minister the world has ever seen. I, I think, my own personal opinion, I think Paul was the greatest Christian who ever lived. Uh, you know, Paul, in the, in the, in the, in the very early human uh, example, of what we should be as Christians. And as you read this passage, you, uh, you really, whether you know it or not, you're reading the qualifications of what I believe it takes to be uh, the minister uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ today. And that concept is completely lost today. Young men and, and young ladies too, but especially young men, they look at a guy who gets up and preaches all the time or teaches Bibles. I know I did it when I was young. I used to watch those guys come to the Canton Baptist Temple and get up there and preach and 2,000 people out there, you know, and they'd preach the Word of God and everybody, amen, the choir sing great songs. Everybody was up at a fever pitch. I used to think that that was the most glorious thing and to get into the ministry and, and, and see all of that. But I want to tell you the truth. When you really get into the ministry, it only takes about 30 seconds to find that that's not the way it is. I often relate it to the Civil War. The Civil War started in 1860 and went to 1865. When the Civil War started, you know that uh, uh, people, uh, young men were, were thronging down there to, to join uh, because they thought the war was going to be a fun thing. They got new uniforms, you know, and they mustered down there, and there was parades and ice cream socials as everybody, you know, celebrated and waved, and all the girls fell in love with you, you know, because you're going off the war, and it was a great thing, you know, and they were all saying, this war will be over before you know it. We'll be back in two weeks, man. It looked like they were going to summer camp. Time they got the little place around Shiloh Meeting House two years later, 50,000 boys dead, 100,000, 200,000 maimed and wounded wasn't glorious anymore. And he still had three more years of, of bloody fighting. Time they got to Gettysburg and Antietam, it was a bad deal. 
And those boys, had, they, had, they, had, they had their whole illusion that war and going to war was a fun time like going to a summer camp. It didn't take long to find out that there's no glory in war. And I didn't take long to find out there ain't no glory in the ministry. You don't get the glory down here. You get it on the other side. I, I showed you early as we started 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 that the ministry is suffering. That's really what the ministry is. He lists all of it in the first chapter. And I told you that the real ministry is you going through what you go through for Christ. You letting the world, the Christian world, your friend, your family, whatever, you let whatever comes your way, come your way. And then as you grow through that suffering, you're able to comfort somebody else in their suffering by the suffering that you've went through. The real Christian ministry is not big churches, though we think it is today. The, big, the, the real Christian ministry today is not buses or 10,000 in Sunday school. But the real ministry is found in one man's Bible, or one man in the New Testament in the Bible in the life of Paul. And it's what he goes through. Uh, a life of being not only a reproach to the world, but also to other Christians who refuse to do the real work and, and play the game and resent you for doing it. And, uh, you know, I, 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 years ago there was a guy... He's dead now. Most of you older people would know him. His name was Leo Humphrey. And Leo Humphrey was one of the greatest Christians that I, I, Christians I ever met in my life. I had got to spend quite a bit of time with him. And Leo Humphrey had such a burden to win people to Christ. And he was, he was, uh, uh, he was, he, he, his whole ministry was going into underpoverished countries and, uh, and just preaching the gospel. He's probably started. He's probably responsible for starting more churches in the, in Central America than any other single guy. Nobody even knows who he is today. But back then, you know, I was just an, a, a a young pastor in a, in a, under a lot of other uh, in a, with all other pastors, and and uh, and uh, uh, every time Leo Humphrey would come to uh, the preach in the church, I'd always watch. The head pastor would get up and he'd tell the people about three weeks out that Leo Humphrey was coming. And he'd say something like this. No, I, I, I got up. Leo was, was, was just where he was. He didn't wear a suit and tie. He got up there and he just dropped the bomb wherever he wanted to drop it. He was crude. He was rough. But he was effective. He felt no, no qualms about stepping on all the high people's toes who pretended they were doing things but weren't. And he would just come in there and he'd tear the place up. I mean, he'd, he'd, he'd ask, he, he, you'd meet him and you know, all the deacons and all the highfalutin people in the church never wanted to really shake hands with him because he'd look you right in the eye and ask you when the last time you won somebody to Christ. That can be quite embarrassing when you haven't done it for the last 45,000 years. <laughs> Leo was the real deal. And I would get so disgusted because the pastor would get up for a couple of weeks before and he'd try to prepare the crowd for Leo Humphrey. He tried to tell the crowd, now this guy is going to be something else. Now you got to just take it with a grain of salt. You know, he's, good, he's great. He's a great guy, but he's a little rough. He's crude, you know, preparing them. And one time I just, I, I, I had it. And I got up to preach one time and I, got, I just told him, I said, you know what? I said, I am sick and tired of everybody apologizing for Leo Humphrey. You know what Leo Humphrey is? Leo Humphrey is what all we should be. And when you got you to gotta apologize to your congregation because a real Christian is preaching, you're in trouble. Amen. You're in trouble. I mean, I'm just telling you, you're in trouble. I, 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 one of the things that give me the burden for places like Restart, 
Had a guy say a while back, well, you know, nothing, restart's never going to go anywhere. You know what? I don't really care if restart ever goes anywhere. You know why I'm down at restart? Because if Jesus would come back tomorrow, you know where he'd be on Sunday afternoon? He'd be at restart. They asked him one time, what are you doing with all the halt, the lame, and all these poor people? He said, hey, the whole need no physician. But we get our priorities out of whack, don't we? Because you lose your focus. You lose your perspective. And uh, you lose your purpose. And I'm I'm telling you, uh, the reason why I do those things is because, honest to goodness, if Jesus came down right now back to this planet, that'd be the first place he'd head. Now, you might think it'd be to your home with your nice, comfortable living room and your sun porch. You might think it might be to your country club church. But I guarantee you, the first place he'd head back down is the same place he went when he came down there in the, first, in the New Testament. He went down to the downtrodden, the ones that needed him. And Paul's a great example of that. Paul's a great example of the more you do for God, the more you're going to get clobbered. That's why it's so hard to find real Christians today. You see, real Christians today, uh, they, 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 they don't want to take a stand for anything. They want a Christianity of ease. They want a lifestyle of ease. They want a Christianity with no trials, no discouragement, or no, no trouble. They want, a, they want a Christianity that is always in a comfort level zone, see? And they don't want to be, they don't want to be bumped outside that comfort zone. They want to go through life as a Christian with nothing. That's why they pick churches where they go. And all, when you leave, everybody gets a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. That's what they want today. They don't want to hear preaching today. They don't want to remind, be reminded of what, a Paul, what Paul was. They don't want to be reminded what the real ministry is. They want to, they want to just go and, and nobody to discomfort them, nobody to rock the boat, nobody to say anything that's controversial, nobody to, to cause any ruffles or any waves. And yet, when you come to pastors and churches today, I'm telling you what, by the way they live, the way they dress, and by the, uh, the personal, um, you know, the personal attendance or the personal uh, people that help them and do all the ministry for them and their, and their, and their personal assistants and their, all the other pastors and all they do is sit in an ivory office someplace on a throne and step out once a week just to give you little scribbles of the Word of God? Does that line up with the greatest Christian of the Bible? It certainly doesn't. You see, when we lose our focus... When we lose our perspective, when we lose our purpose, then we get deluded into thinking that Christianity is something that never has any trials or tribulations with it. That's simply not true. A couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody asked a question. Oh, was a kid called in on the, on the uh, or emailed in on the website. He wanted to know about the lost books of the Bible. Well, to forget about the lost books of the Bible, let me give you some of the lost verses of the Bible for Christians today. Hebrews 13, 13 says, Let us go therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. That's Christianity today. Years ago, I heard a man say in a Bible conference, and he was an old preacher. Boy, he was good. And I heard him get up there, and he was preaching, and he was talking about the ministry. And he says, When it comes to true Christians... You measure the success of a man's ministry not by how many people love him, but how many people hate him, and he keeps on going. You know, that's hard for people to grasp today. When you say that, it's hard for Christians today to understand that. And the reason why it is is because, honestly, and I love you to death, but some of you God's people have never took a stand for anything. You've never had to. 
And when it comes, the opposition comes or some problem comes up or some issue of, of, that's not right and not biblical, where are the men and women today who take a stand for what truth is and what the Bible says? I mean, um, I understand it. It's hard today. And I got to tell you, it probably took me 30 years to understand what he meant by that statement. I'm not telling you any stretch of the imagination the moment he said it. I got it. It probably took me 30 years to figure out what he said was true. But I can say after 45 plus years in the ministry, it's true. It's true. Well, I think of old Novatius. Old Novatius was back there in the first and second century. And when everybody wanted to go one way and try to amalgamate into a big mess, he said, absolutely not. And they ridiculed him and they called his followers Novatians. And you know what they said to him? They said, you're just following a man. So they called them Novations. I think of, I, I think of, of, of Manet, who started the, the Manichian movement. Again, he would not follow and fit, go into the, the norm of where everything was going. And they called his people uh, 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 Manichians. I think of the Waldensians and the Albigensians, two of the most precious groups down through history that were hated by everybody. I think of Martin Luther. Martin Luther probably out of the Reformation was the most hated man in, in, in New Testament Christianity. They came to him one time and said, Martin, don't you know the whole world's against you? You know what he said? He said, well, then I'm against the whole world. You don't find him like that anymore. Not at all. I think of John Knox. They named John Knox Village after him. But that's where it ends with the name. He stood before Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary had killed more Christians and more preachers than any woman and, and 100 years before or 200 years after. And old John Knox preached in her face and lived to tell about it. Fearless guy. He took a stand. He took a stand. I think of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday single-handed brought in prohibition by preaching the Word of God. They hated him so much an old drunken uh, guy by the name of Elmer, uh, by uh, Sinclair Lewis, made a movie called Elmer Gantry. And the movie with Burt Lancaster in it was a slam on Billy Sunday. And it was nothing more than a man who hated him so much. Who, how would you like someone that hated your gut so much they put a movie out back then that still plays today? You know how much gets lost in that over the years? You know how many people don't even know that that's about Billy Sunday anymore? But it does. It paints all evangelists like Elmer Gantry because he hated the preaching of the Word of God. That's why. Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. I think of J. Frank Norris. There's places down in Texas if you go, you better not mention J. Frank Norris's name. Why, they'll kill you down there. Yet he was the single one guy that why you got the right Bible today. He's the single guy that took the stand, fearless. There was a guy one time called him up on the phone after he preached and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come over there and blow your blankety-blank head off. J. Frank Norris says, I'll be here to 1.30. <laughs> guy walked in the office, pulled a gun. J. Frank outdrew him and shot him right in his office. No, I'm not condoning that. What would you do? He'd find you hidden in the closet someplace. 
There was a guy that threatened to kill him one time, and it was a guy that, because he was preaching on booze and liquor, and it was a big fat cat in the city one time that was out to get him and said, I'll kill J. Frank Norris, and he's a blankety-blank and just hated his guts, and he was driving down the road one Saturday night with two or three girls on his arm, and he, he got in a car, the car exploded, and it blew up everywhere. He hit something, I don't know, and it, 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 J. Frank Norris went to the scene, and there was a piece of his brain over there on the sidewalk, and J. Frank Norris went over and picked up a piece of his cranium and put it in a jar, put it on the pulpit and preach Sunday morning. I'm not sure I'd do that. <laughs> It'd be kind of tough today preaching on Christians because most of them don't have any brains today. You'd have to put another piece up there or something. Now I want you to see some things today. The things he lists in verse 22 to 28 would put us all under the table. The modern 20 and 21st century latest in shout of God wants no part of these things, you see. And I'll be honest, most of God's people's trials and afflictions today in the areas that knock us out really have nothing to do with the attack of the devil uh, like he did Paul. The devil has no need to attack us because God's people today, we attack ourselves. We, by our bad choices of life, cancel out any real ministry. You see it in everything. We're our own worst enemy. You see it with, you see it with, with the choices people make and who they marry. You know, and they, they come to the place where the one bad choice, and that's why I try to have you do everything by the book and use the Bible principles in, in doing what you do. You choose the wrong mate in life, and you're done, man. You're done. You're done. We've seen it in, in the choices of how people raise their children. I mean, you can get along so long sweeping your kids under the rug when they're little, but when they turn 16, 17, 18, and all of their ungodliness goes public, it's kind of hard for you to justify it anymore. I was at a birthday party a while back, and a little kid came in, and I was sitting there, and a kid came in bringing some presents. Uh, and he's about 9 or 10 years old. He brought some presents in for the thing, and he put it up there. And I was just being cute. I was just being my nice self. And I said, hey, I said, where's my present? He looked at me and said, in the pit of hell. <laughs> now, If you got a kid that's 9 and 10 and talks to an adult that way, what do you think he's going to talk to you when he's 16 or 17 or 18? Uh, if you got in your house one of those big glass frame things that's painted red with a hatchet in it, and it says, in case of emergency, break glass, now would be the time to break it. <laughs> Crazy, man. I see in the decisions that you, you know, it only takes one or two bad choices in life, and you're done, man. Poor choices. Then our pride gets in, our self-righteousness gets in, our arrogancy gets in, and you know what we build? We build a little stronghold. These things become in time, in our lives, our worst nightmare. And all the stress and the issues weigh us down long before the barren reproach of Christ can ever get into it. We cancel ourselves out just because of our own stupidity. It's like I said Thursday night, if they ever make a remake of the movie Dumber and Dumbest, most of us could play both roles. <laughs> we spend more time defending ourselves than we do the cause of Christ. We never get past bearing our own reproach. And the devil uses those bad choices 
Now, I got to honest with you, you know, many of you are, are great stories of how you've overcome those things. Our church is filled with people that were just like what I talk about, and yet you made a difference in your life because you wanted to make a difference in your life. But not always happens that way. Paul understood a great truth that I believe is missing today, not only in the ministry, but in Christianity. It's the truth that approach and affliction for Christ is a good thing. Somehow we've got the idea that it's a bad thing. You see, we need that in our lives to keep us honest. Paul said in chapter 12, verse 10, we've not gotten there yet, but he says in that chapter, he says, when I'm at my weakest, then I, when I'm at my strongest. The strongest we'll ever be for God is when we are the weakest point in our life to ourselves, but people don't get that today, and I understand why. Hey, I, I'm just like you. Nobody wants, to, uh, nobody wants that because at the end of the day, let's be honest, we're all control freaks. We all are. We all are. We want to manipulate every circumstance that comes into our life the way we want it and then say, oh, look what God did for me. <laughs> we want to control everything that happens. We want to be in charge of every aspect of our life and then foolishly give God the credit for it when God wants nothing to do with it. I understand it. We want to fix it ourselves when it's unfixable that way. We want to make it happen when God doesn't want it to happen. We want to manipulate the circumstances and the situation so we can get what we want and then simply say, God just did a great thing in my life. God did nothing in your life. But we've all been there. We all understand that. We all realize that that's, that's what we do. I mean, you see it in dealing with people. You, you people come in with problems and they got heartache and they got issues and you lay out a clear Bible plan for them that will bring them out of the darkness into the light and give them everything they want. They last about three or four weeks and suddenly their plan is better than yours. Well, if your plan was better than mine, why'd you ever come to me in the first place? Manipulation. We don't want to give up control. We don't. Because the mark of our church age today is we're in control. We do everything. We want to be in charge of everything. And that can't work. When you're at your strongest is when you'll be at your weakest. Now, now look at this. Paul says in verse 24 that he was beaten five times by the Jews. Forty save one. That's 39 stripes. Five times, that adds up to 195 lashes. That man was scarred from head to toe. Verse 25 says, in addition to the whipping, he was beaten three more times with rods. That's like bamboo poles or something the size of a broomstick. Verse 25 says he was stoned. That's not the one you're thinking of. <laughs> Most Christians get stoned today, but not in the biblical sense. He was stoned. That's probably a reference to Acts chapter 14, verse 19, when he's there at Lystra. And they left him for the dead. They thought he beat him up so bad, they thought he was dead. They hauled him out and threw him outside the city for dead. But he wasn't. Verse 25 says he was shipwrecked three times. Carnival cruise, probably. <laughs> he was shipwrecked three times. One of the times he was in the water 24 hours. He says a day and a night. Verse 26 says that he traveled all, uh, to all of his churches. That's the three missionary journeys. And he was in constantly in danger. He was in danger wherever he went, whether he traveled by land or he traveled by sea. Verse 26 says he's in perils of water. 
perils of robbers, perils of mine own countrymen, perils by the heathen. He's perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils by false brethren. He was hounded by all three people groups. I've told you before, the Bible's written to three people groups. He's, he's hounded and plagued by all three of them. He's hounded by the Jews because they hate him because he once was their boy. And he's now a turncoat because he became a Christian. And now he became a Christian. They're against him and they want to kill him because he's turned from their belief and turned from their faith. He's hated by the Gentiles because the Roman government, the Gentile nation now is the Roman government. They hate Christianity. They disdain it. And they want to wipe out every Christian. And they called him a ringleader and a leader of a religious sect. And they want to kill him. That wasn't bad enough. God's people want to kill him. Other Christians want to kill him. Don't ever get in your mind, brother, that just because we're all saved that we're all going to get along and when you start to do something God's called you to do, people aren't going to get jealous of the fight, get bitter about it, and then come after you. It comes with the territory. They hated him and persecuted him because he was the man God was using. And you can see it all through here. You can see it all through church history. When a guy comes to you and says, well, what church you go to? Well, I go to Bob Alexander's church. Well, you're just following a man. You know why they say that? Because nobody will follow them. That's why. It's just part of where it happens. You've got to understand it. Danger seemed to follow him wherever he went. The devil attacked him personally to kill him, or at least to get him discouraged to quit. Paul was a prime target. He and his personal ministry that God had given him that was going to change the world. Yet, I, I got to tell you, when you talk about all that, about Paul, we get this idea that he was a superhuman man. I'm telling you, kids, he wasn't. He's just like me and you. He's just like me and you. He's just a man who got saved and then takes it seriously, and then God gives him something to do, and he does it, and he's willing to pay the price. Verse 27 says he was dog-tired. He was in constant pain, I'm sure, from the beatings. He lost sleep. He was hungry and thirsty. He not only went without food because he had none, but he fasted through his trials to the Lord. The Bible says he lacked clothing, proper clothing for cold and summer. Yeah, in the New Testament, Paul was the greatest example of a Christian who served God through ministry. I think he's the benchmark. That's why so many of the old guys that really knew, I knew my father and the Lord, this is true, and I knew many of them. If you would ask them who their favorite character was in the Bible, every one of them would say the Apostle Paul. And I understand that. I do. The difference between Paul and the Laodicean Christian and pastors is like the difference between night and day. And as I said the last two or three weeks as we've been coming through this, the Laodicean church period has produced the worst bunch of Christians you've ever seen. He told the church in Galatians, chapter 6, verse 9, what a great verse. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. He understood that. He can speak with authority. Some of you understand that. You can speak it with authority. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy three twelve, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He can speak that by authority. At the end of your life, maybe you'll be able to speak that by authority. Paul, our example, an example of the true ministry of God. He took a stand. And the problem is today is God's people can't take stand for anything. They just can't. 
Now, along with that, there's this, and I think every man in the ministry, whether you're a pastor or a deacon or a worker or an elder or whatever, should in the Old Testament study uh, the counterpart of Paul as a minister. And Paul, God's got a great one in the New Testament, and he's got one a great one in the Old Testament, and they complement each other. And in the Old Testament, it's the life of Moses. To me as a pastor, now I know Paul was not a pastor. He was an evangelist, and I learned a lot from him because he ministered, and ministry knows no title. But to me as a pastor, which I am, he's really, Moses is really my model and my example. To me, Moses is the greatest pastor in all of the Bible. Most people don't even think of him that way. Paul was an evangelist, but no, no, Moses was a pastor. I mean, I don't know if you never looked at it or not. He ran two million plus in Sunday school. <laughs> hey, I don't know if you ever looked at it or not. He pulled out two plus, two million plus right out of the devil's backyard. And he pastored that same congregation for 40 years. And yet you see in his ministry the same issues that I face, any pastor faces, except you've got to multiply his problems by two million plus. I, I can't even get there. I, I, can't even emo- I can't even imagine it. I mean, I mean, he deals with opposition in everything God calls him to do, and so will you. First one was Pharaoh. Pharaoh's a type of the world. He had some real issues dealing with Pharaoh, but God brought him through it. The second thing that he had to deal with when he got out was the people that God sent him. They murmured about everything. If you ever want to see the ministry and the people that you have to pastor to, just go back and look at Moses. Those people murmured about everything. They were never happy. One day they had no water. They wanted to kill Moses. They wanted to go back to Egypt. God came down and did a great miracle, and then they were upset about the two weeks later. They forgot what God done. We got no water. We got no food. We got this. Let's go back to Egypt. Oh, it was wonderful back there. I preached a message one time on our three infirmities that we all have to deal with. I told you, Romans chapter 6, verse 19, that the first infirmity you and I have is our flesh. I told you, Romans chapter 8, verse 26, the second infirmity we have to deal with is we don't know how to pray. And I told you the third infirmity we have in Psalm 77, 10, that we always are forgetting what God just did for us. Moses' people back there that he pastored for 40 years, they're just like any congregation you find. They always wanted to ask Moses, don't tell me what you did for me yesterday, just tell me what you're going to do for me today. Oh, that's where he's at. Great study. Great study. Great study. A Moses in the Old Testament is a great example of a pastor and what he'll have to face. It really is. Incredible. Moses got tired in the ministry but he also got tired of the ministry. I can't blame him. Now, I get tired in the ministry, but I got to tell you, I've never got tired of the ministry, but I only got one group to work with. He had two million of them, man. He did. If you ever want to see how tired he got, I'll show you. Turn over to Numbers chapter 11. Oh, I love this one, man. I go here more. If you look at my Bible, this has probably got more thumbprints on it than any other passage in the Bible. Numbers chapter 11. He not only got tired in the ministry, he got tired of the ministry. And who wouldn't with what he had to put up with? Boy, that's great stuff. Better lose this glory aspect of, oh, I'm going I'm to be in ministry, man. I'm going to get me a three-piece suit, and I'm going to get me a hat, and I'm going to go to town. You'll get run out of town. Now, you want to see how tired he got? Look at this. Look at verse 10. 
Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families. Every man in the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. Now, God's mad at the people. Moses is mad at God. You ever get mad at God? You say, well, I don't think you should get mad at God. Well, probably if you don't know you can get mad at God in the right way to get mad at God, then you probably shouldn't get mad at God because you're probably getting mad for the wrong reason. Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? That would be me, Moses. And where have I not found favor in thy sight that thou layest this burden of all this people upon me? Oh, you got to love that. He's saying, hey, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Look at that crowd out there. Why are you laying all this burden on me? Look what he says in verse 12. Have I conceived all these people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldest say unto me, carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father beareth a suckling child under the land? That's sarcasm, man. That's him looking at God and saying, hey, they're your people. You brought them out. You're the one that did all these great miracles. And now look, what I'm supposed to carry them around for 40 years like a bunch of little babies? changing their diapers, making sure their formula's warm, patting them on the back, patting them on the head. He says, hey, they're your people. Why can't you do something with them? Oh, he's tired, man. He's tired. He's tired. Verse 13, when should I have flesh to give all the, unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, give us flesh that we may eat. He's saying, hey, look. You're the one with all the book of promises. You're the one that said you do great and mighty things. Can we have a few of them now? Why is it me who's got to feed two million plus people when they're not my people? Oh, he's, he's struggling. He's struggling. Verse 14, am I not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me? He says, why don't you kick in a little bit, God? Why don't you give me a hand here? Why did you bring me down with two million plus dead beats? Leave me out here in the desert with them. At least you're going to send me to Hawaii. Now, I love verse 15. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me. I pray thee out of hand. That just means come on down and get it over with. If I find favor in thy sight, let me, let me not see my wretchedness. He's tired, man. He'd been put up with it for so long and he'd been going through it so much and he's been listening to the whining and the complaining and all the deceit and all the stuff that goes on. They made golden calves. They have done this. They've done that. They tried to, they, they wanted to stone him one time. They didn't like him. And then he goes back and he goes forth. And right, he's like a father with a little baby carrying him around in his bosom doing everything for him. And he says, you know what, Lord? I'm tired of it. Just do me a favor. I love you. You know I love you. Do me the biggest favor you can do today. Just come down and kill me out of hand. Pete Ruckman's got a video, another one he ought to get called, called uh, Wipeouts in the Ministry. He goes through the great men in the Bible who got discouraged just like Moses did. Because the ministry can be discouraging. And he goes down there and he talks about Jeremiah, who God had given the word of God to go to the people and the nation of Israel. And they hated it. You know what they did to Jeremiah? 
They put two ropes under his arms. Have you ever, you ever seen a porta potty? Well, porta potty, a porta potty is a modern version of an outhouse. In the Bible, they're called dung hills. And it's, 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 no, it's not dung and donuts, it's dung hill. I know you, some of you thought it was Dunkin' Donuts. No, wrong place. <laughs> it's filled with dung, maybe 10 or 12 feet. They hated Jeremiah so much, they put ropes under his arms and let him down into that dung pit, and he's down there up to his head in the most ungodly scenario he can. You talk about the glory of the ministry. All because he preached the truth. He got so mad and bitter, he quit. He told God, he says, Lord, I'm done with this, man. Smell me. I am done. I'm done with this. I come down here to preach the word of God. God just stand there. He says, I'm finished. I'm never going to preach again. God says, okay, good deal. Okay, Lord, all right with you? All right with me. You want to quit? Yes, sir, I want to quit. You can quit. Thank you. I'm quitting. Only one thing. What's that? You can't ever speak in my name again because that's only my prophet. And if you don't want to be my prophet, you can't speak in my name. He says, good enough for me. He goes about a week thinking, man, I'm glad I'm out of that ministry. But I'm people, they just, I'm just one of them now. I can just go out there and hang out with them. And about that time he saw this gay marriage parade coming down the road, <laughs> gay pride week. And he got the temple started to throbbing, you know, and he got to that thing and he, 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 he just, he's just watching that thing and they're coming down with signs, you know, and love everybody and we love you and, and rainbow shirts on, you know, and all that stuff. And they're coming down and he's just getting so mad and finally he, he, he just busts out and he, he, just, he just lets them have it. God said, hey, 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 can't do that anymore. You quit, remember? You quit the ministry, remember? You quit, you gave it up can't speak in my name anymore. You know what old Jeremiah said? He says, Lord, I want to quit. He said, but at your word, oh, your word is like a burning fire within me. See, that's a real Christian. Real Christian can't quit. You're truly saved and the word of God is really down inside you. It burns like a fire. I can no more quit than any real Christian could quit than those guys could quit. You know why? Because that book, when it gets in you, it consumes you. Oh, yeah, wipeouts in the ministry. Moses got discouraged, boy. He got hurting. He's, he's hurting, man. He's hurting. Hey, you know, when those times come in Moses' life, as in my life and as in your life, you can read the rest of the story. God always comes alongside and encourages him. God helps get his perspective back. God helps get his purpose back, gets his focus back on track. And Moses, just like many of you, gets up one more time, gives it one more shot. See? Ah, it's great. If anybody understands dealing with people and human nature, it's old Moses. One of the things I want you to learn in the people ministry, you think because you learn some principles that everybody's just going to fall in line. It may take you months. It may take you years to develop some kind of relationship with somebody. There's no fast track to doing everything that God wants you to do. But Moses and Paul, boy, they're, oh boy, they're two great examples. You know, going back to Paul there in verse 28, if you would, he says this. He says, besides all these things that are without, that cometh upon me daily, he says, I got the care of all the churches. I, I can't imagine that. 
He said, not only do I have my own issues, I got myself to deal with, I got my wife to deal with, I got my family to deal with, I got the people that you, you've given me to deal with. Not all that, but he says, I've got all the other churches that you gave me. You say, Paul wasn't married. Yeah, are you sure about that? I'm sure just like in many cases, his spouse didn't want to follow the ministry and that was just one more issue he had to deal with. For somebody who was never married, he sure got great insight on marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Why, in this very chapter, he has to get let down from a wall in a basket because somebody's trying to kill him. Not only did he have to deal with all of that, but he has to deal with all the churches too. I, I, I can't even imagine it. Why, all his ministry, ministry trips, everything he's done, he's playing around uh, checking on the churches. I got one to look after, and he had at least seven and probably hundreds more. And as a good minister, he worried over them. He was afraid the devil would mess them up. He prayed over them. He raised money for them when they were hurting and in jail and had problems like the church at Jerusalem. And yet Paul, just like you and me, he's no Superman. He wouldn't stand out in any crowd. He's not tall and charismatic. He's bent over and hunched back from all the beatings and the whippings that he had, probably walked with a bad limp. He's not a great speaker, not unlike Moses. Moses wasn't either. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, 2 Corinthians 10, 10, people talk about him being rude in speech and unlearned. Verse 6 says that he's rude in speech but not in knowledge. He had a mind that was like a steel trap. He was trained by the, one of the greatest Old Testament scholars of his day in Acts 22, verse 3. He's just like any other Christian. He has his own frailties. I'm sure Paul got his feelings hurt. I'm sure he got his emotions involved. I'm sure he got offended and hurt. I'm sure he's attempted and tried just like you and I are. You say, well, what's the difference then between that makes him so great? It was the Holy Spirit of God and the power of God in his life. It was the fact that he was willing to be weak so God could use him to be strong. He reminds me a lot of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a great preacher, and D.L. Moody was going to a church in, a, in, a, in the United States for like four or five years, having revivals every year. And he had just finished a revival, and, and hundreds of people had gotten saved. And the pastor and the deacons, everybody sat down the next week to discuss it and talk about it and work follow up on it. And uh, the pastor said, well, while we're all here, why don't we talk about a date that we can have uh, Moody come back next year? And some of the deacons, you know, weren't, too happy with Moody. A lot of times leadership in the church is not happy with the people get ahead of them. And they, they said, well, why do we got to have Moody back again? One of them snarled and said, has Moody got a corner on the Holy Spirit of God? One of the old deacons, the other old deacon said, no, I don't think Moody's got a corner on the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit's got a corner on Moody. Just have him back. You say, what was the difference between Paul and me if we're all the same? Is the power of God in his life. That was the difference. The fact that no matter what no matter how hard it got, how long was the journey, he stayed faithful to the end. The fact that all through his life and his struggles and everything that he did, he never lost, he never lost his purpose. You know what purpose is for you and for me? Purpose is understanding, purpose is simply understanding why God saved you. God has something he wants you to do. He wants your life, we talk about my life has no purpose. Well, if you get saved, you'll get purpose. Purpose is understanding, first of all, that God saved you for a reason. You have a purpose in life. 
The reason why you're so miserable as a Christian is not because of the person sitting in front of you or behind you or somebody you don't like. The reason why you're so miserable as a Christian is because you have no purpose in life. And when you have no purpose in life, you don't understand why God saved you. The second thing is focus. You see, focus is basically understanding specifically what God saved you for. When you have focus, you know, okay, God saved me. I have a purpose. Now here's what it is. And you stay focused on that. Focused is, is, is identifying what God has called you to do. God not only has a purpose for every one of you, he has a, something he wants you to focus on. You know, it may be at this time in your life, it may be something that all of you are, but in time that focus narrows and God shows you. He never lost his perspective. Perspective is simply purpose, is understanding why God saved you. Focus is understanding specifically what God has called you to do. Perspective is understanding how you're going to get it done, see? How you're going to get it done. When I started this church, I knew in my mind exactly how to build a church. I knew it wouldn't be easy. I knew it wouldn't be hard. I knew it would take a long time. I, I knew there was things you'd have to do, things you have to know, things you have to accomplish. But I understood. I understood. I had perspective. I understand how to get it done. Uh, I'm not done getting it done yet, but I understand the process. Everything that God calls you to do, there's the right biblical process to do it. You got to do it that way. That's why he's the greatest example to us today. He never lost his purpose. He never lost his focus. He never lost his perspective. Next week, I'll show you his, his secret to it all. And it's something that, honestly, every one of you could have if you want it. The question is, really, how bad do you want it? You see, the greatest thing about Paul is simply the fact that he's an ordinary guy, just like you and me. If he was some superhero, we'd all be in a fix because none of us are superheroes. If he was some great guy with a great vocabulary and a great uh, stature and someone that everybody looked to as a leader, that would put some of us at a disadvantage. But he wasn't. He probably, from a physical standpoint and a physiological standpoint, one of the worst specimens you've ever saw. He was beaten down, hunched over, couldn't speak well. He, could, he, was, he was rude in what he said. I mean, he, he, he would not be the guy you would probably I, I would pick to be the leader of the Christian world in the first century. But the incredible thing about him is not what he accomplished in life, and he did a lot of great things. This church, along with any church that's a Bible-believing church, can trace their roots right back to Paul. Our church today is nothing more than the succession of, of the line of coming back where it all went back to him. We figure somewhere in that scheme. And one of these days when we get home to heaven, we'll see it all perfectly. But that's not the incredible thing about him. The thing that made him a great example was not any one thing that he did. But rather the thing that made him my hero was what he didn't do. He never quit. He never quit. No matter how hard it got, he never gave up. No matter how tough it became, no matter what the opposition was, no matter how, he was tried and tested. And boy, the devil came after him. We read the verses. He never quit. He never lost his focus. He never lost his purpose. He never lost any of those things. He was attacked on every side by everybody to try to stop him. Yet he stayed faithful to the end. And we get one little thing in our life that doesn't go our way, get our nose bent on a joint, we're gone. See the difference? It takes a special kind of person to stand today. 
Paul is a special kind of person. And that's what it takes. That's what it takes. He stayed faithful to the end. And the answer to all of this is found in chapter 12. And that's why I said, not only are we going to talk about Paul being attacked today by the devil personally and see how that fits in, but this lays the, this lays the foundation for chapter 12. In my mind, as far as ministry, I think 2 Corinthians chapter 12, probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest chapter in the Bible of defining. Do you want to be a Paul? You want to take a stand and be able to stand? Well, then you gotta, you got to understand what got Paul there. Paul was a unique individual, but he wasn't a unique individual just because he was born that way. He wasn't a unique individual because his parents were unique individuals. He wasn't, he wasn't, it wasn't a genetic thing with him. He starts out being the worst enemy of Christianity and winds up being the greatest Christian ever lived. Something happened between point A and point B. And if that same thing doesn't happen in your life, you'll go through life in a nominal fashion. And maybe that's what you want. Maybe that's what you want. I've never been nominal in anything in my life. I've never been middle of the road in anything. I'm either in or I'm out. And uh, it's a thing where for me, when I saw chapter 12, when I understood it, uh, that's where it was. The same thing that got him through the first century A.D. will get you through the 21st century A.D. And next week, as simple as it is, I'll show you why some of God's people make it and why some of them don't. There's one determining factor that put all this together because Paul was just like you and me. He was just a common, ordinary guy. When the world would look at him, they would never think, that's my choice to start every church in the world. But he was God's choice. And the greatest thing about him is not anything that he did, but it's what he allowed God to do in his life. I'm going to show you that next week. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We